Welcome to Highbrow, and I'm your host, Mina Lay. Before we get started today, I have to bring up the fact that I got this amazing email. So if you listened to the last episode, it was kind of like a recap of things that were happening in April and March, and I mentioned water discourse, specifically like the flavored water discourse that was happening on TikTok, and I got into this whole thing with like the luxury water market, and I mentioned this one clip from um, Zac Efron's travel food show on Netflix. I don't remember what it's called, forgive me. But in this episode, in this clip that I showed, they went to a water sommelier and the water sommelier made this claim that you should not be drinking um, purified water because it strips the minerals from your body. And I thought that sounded a little ridiculous and I did make that disclaimer But I got an email from someone who actually knows more about it than me. So I'm going to read out this email. Um, This is from Liliana. Liliana prefaced that she is studying environmental science at their school. Okay, so this is what they wrote. First of all, what the Frenchman said about drinking water with TDS of zero leading to minerals leaving your body was blatant misinformation. The only study that possibly supports this was conducted in 1980s Soviet Russia and it found that drinking water with less than 100 milligrams per liter of TDS led to the release of sodium, potassium, chloride, and calcium ions from the human body. However, it is not a reliable source because the scientific methods used were questionable, as was the conclusion it came to. Additionally, major health organizations like the World Health Organization have not found that drinking water with low TDS has any negative health effects, let alone that it makes your body lose minerals. By the way, um, TDS stands for total dissolved solids and the general consensus is that you um, want to drink water that has a lower TDS so somewhere between 0 and 50 ppm so the TDS of water is directly related to its purity and quality of water filtration systems okay (laughs) with that out of the way let's get back to the email Moving on from that, I think that the bottled water industry is very suspicious, and there's not a lot of public awareness. First of all, most bottled water companies are owned by giant corporations. Nestle owns many brands, including San Pellegrino, and they owned Pullen Spring as recently as 2021. Smartwater and Dasani are owned by the Coca-Cola Company, and Aquafina is owned by PepsiCo, just to name a few. The bottled water industry's revenue in 2023 is over $94 billion dollars. And anywhere from 45% to 64% of bottled water is from municipal sources, meaning bottled water companies simply take tap water, filter it, and sell it at a 2,000% markup. Not to mention the rest of the water comes from places like California, which have been facing historic droughts recently. Worse still, the federal standards for bottled water are much less stringent than those for tap water. It's also ridiculous considering how many of these companies market themselves as pure and act like tap water is bad for you. Disclaimer, most of that information is specific to the U.S. and obviously if the water is unsafe to drink where you live, bottled water is better, but otherwise it's basically a scam. That's just my two cents. There's a lot more to say, especially as it relates to indigenous rights and sovereignty over water here in Turtle Island, but this is what I know the most about. Where I live, having free access to quality water is a privilege that I don't have to think about a lot, but it's horrific and dystopian that's a privilege at all. True that, Liliana. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, I really appreciated that little fact check there. Also, if I ever say anything that you know more than I do about and you want to challenge any point I say, send me an email. Um, My email is highbrowbymedia at gmail.com. And uh, if you have the research to back it up, 
I'll give you a little shout out in the next episode and will humbly correct myself. All right, so getting on with today's video. So today's video is actually going to be another director's cut video on my magazine video that I just published on Monday. Specifically, fashion magazines. If you're like me and you grew up in the 90s and early 2000s and you remember watching The Devil Wears Prada and 13 Going on 30 and uh, the later episodes of Sex and the City when Carrie Bradshaw starts working for Vogue, you also probably had a dream career of one day being a fashion journalist or a fashion editor or even a fashion assistant, though I will get to that conversation later. <laughs> Another really popular fashion journalism movie I have to uh, give a shout out to is Down With Love. It's not as popular as the other ones that I uh, just mentioned, but it is really funny and really cute. It's a rom-com. It stars Renee Zellweger and Ewan McGregor, and it came out like in 2003. And I guess, I don't know why it just like didn't take off, but it has amazing costumes. And it's a little kitschy, like it's not very serious, which is the point. And there's like a fantastic musical number at the end. It's a good time with good costuming. And if you don't like either of those things, then I don't know what to tell you, but you should watch it. Anyways, there was just something so glamorous and so aspirational about working at a fashion magazine. I also thought it was a very lucrative career choice because literally everyone who was working at fashion magazines in these movies was living the high life. They had a wardrobe of couture. They lived in beautiful Manhattan apartments. They had everything. And whether or not working at a magazine was ever as glamorous as 13 going on 30 uh, propagandizes it to be, that's up to the discretion of people who actually worked there in the 90s and 2000s. But one thing's for sure is that in this day and age, working at a magazine does not seem very glamorous. And you know, I don't know too many young people. I don't have friends with kids. Most of my friends don't have kids. Let me amend that statement. I do have a couple friends with kids. Most of my friends don't have kids, so I don't know what kids want to be right now. But I'm wondering, do children still want to be fashion editors? Like, I feel like this was such a late millennial, older Gen Z type of career path aspiration. And yeah, I just don't know. If you're a young person, let me know if this is something you still you still want to do. To give a sense of what the uh, industry is like today, though, in 2022, Katherine Hopkins analyzed for Women's Wear Daily the trajectory of 50 major magazines. According to the article, print editions of fashion magazines Allure, Cosmopolitan, Elle, InStyle, Marie Claire, and W Magazine have all been cut back since the pandemic. From 2002 to 2020, estimated revenue for periodical publishing, which includes magazines, fell by 40.5%, and 25% of that decrease occurred over the 2010s. Even pre-pandemic, uh, teen-style magazines, Teen Vogue and Seventeen, went fully digital. And as of now, there are no major monthly fashion publications, as in, there is no fashion publication that publishes once a month, 12 issues. My name is Beverly. I'm 31 years old and I live in Michigan. Um, when I grew up in the 2000s, magazines were our way into celebrity culture and life because it really wasn't on the internet yet. At least it wasn't accessible to me as a teenager in the 2000s. And uh, the magazine, I was a big, big collector of magazines. I had all the magazines, 17, uh, Teen Vogue, 
Elle, Girl, all of them. But the one that spoke most to me was Elle, Girl. It was definitely the coolest back then. It kind of stayed on the more alternative side, but very, very popular mainstream culture too, but it it dipped into alternative culture. And it just felt cool. Um, I remember they would have, every year they would have this sex issue, and it would just be pulling people who are my age or maybe a little bit older, and the way that they talked about sex was in a very approachable way that didn't make me feel like I was a, a child. It made me feel like it was age appropriate. And it answered questions that I wouldn't have been able to get answered at the time due to the resources that we had. So um, the fashion was just amazing. I would rip out pages of the magazine and just hang them on my wall because of the the cool, like, skater fashion that it had. And I have very, very fond memories of L-Girl. And I appreciate you asking that question because it brought that back to me. Thanks for sharing, Beverly. Oh, my gosh. So I'm a little younger than you, so I didn't read L-Girl. I guess I could have because I just looked it up and it ran from 2001 to 2006. So I was reading things in 2006. So I could have picked it up, I guess. But yeah, I didn't read it. And it seems really cool from what I've researched about it. So for anyone who also wasn't part of the L-Girl train, um, their motto was dare to be different. (laughs) And they featured bands like They Might Be Giants, Rooney, and ran street style photography before it was really a thing. And once put Mandy Moore and Kelly Osbourne on a cover together. Apparently, they were good friends in 2002. They also had a serialized fiction column by a popular young adult author and monthly Q&As and just cool girls doing cool things. So according to um, Guardian, the reason that it shuttered was because like teen magazines in general were having a hard time uh, gaining readership or growing readership in the early 2000s because um, they were competing against the internet, mobile phones, and computer games. So J17 also closed in 2004 around the same time after losing around a third of its readers, which I think is sad because, you know, like in the early 2000s, I would say the internet was still a wild west and there was a limited amount of information that you could glean for yourself unless you were looking for it so you know like i think now with social media and twitter and instagram so many people report getting news in that way because people are just like sharing everything and anything and yeah there is an algorithm to it but with trending topics on twitter for instance you're kind of going to get some type of world news on your feed whether you're looking for it or not Versus I feel like on the internet back in like the early 2000s or 2004 to 2005, I, at least as a kid, didn't find anything political online because I wasn't searching for that because I didn't know to search for that. And I was just like watching silly YouTube videos like the Harry Potter Puppet Pals. And yeah, again, I mean, I was like 10. So maybe someone who was a teenager operated the internet differently, but that was my experience on the internet. And I feel like when social media became a thing, that's when I became more cognizant of the world around me. So, you know, if I'm ex- <laughs> if I'm um, applying my experience to everyone else, which is never a good practice, but just for the sake of my argument, I'm going to do that. Like, if there are other people who operated early internet in the way that I did, there's nothing that can 
replace a magazine because, you know, texting with your friends, you're just going to talk about your insular communities and insular things. And especially when it comes to like sex education, I don't think any of my friends when we were teenagers knew anything about that in terms of, yeah, just like anything. And just, you know, on a sillier level, I also loved cutting up magazines. I loved like Tiger Beat and all those gossip rags that, you know, I don't consider to be like fashion magazines, but you know, I loved cutting out pictures of Zac Efron or um, I was never a big fan of the Jonas Brothers, but Miley Cyrus and Hannah Montana. So having that kind of like tactile form of creativity where I could like create collages or paste things to my wall. Those are fond memories that I have that I feel like nowadays teenagers, children don't have unless they print things out themselves. But again, it's, it's not the same. HelloFresh is America's number one meal kit. They take the hassle out of mealtime this spring by delivering pre-proportioned ingredients and easy-to-prepare recipes right to your door. Skip the checkout lines and get outside in the warmer weather because HelloFresh has dinner covered. With HelloFresh, you're getting seasonal ingredients picked at peak ripeness for quality you can taste. Ingredients travel from the farm to your home in less than seven days, so you know they're fresh. I've been partnered with HelloFresh for months now, and I've never been disappointed by any of their recipes. And they have so many of them to choose from, so that's a big plus for me since I'm one of those people who likes to have variety in my diet, and I like to try something new in the kitchen every so often. Um, it's honestly such a time saver too. My schedule is super hectic and all over the place, and knowing that I have all the ingredients already waiting for me in the fridge when I get home from class or from a work function is such a relief. Go to HelloFresh.com slash Mina50 and use code Mina50 for 50% off plus your first box ships free. That's HelloFresh.com slash Mina50 and use code Mina50 for 50% off plus your first box ships free. Thank you HelloFresh for sponsoring this video. Before we get into the fall, let's get into the rise of the fashion magazine industry. For 400 years before the fashion magazine, Westerners would get their fashion news in the form of fashion dolls, or Pandoras. These Pandoras were essentially mini mannequins that wore meticulously constructed costumes that tailors would then copy into life-size versions for their patrons. These dolls were well-traveled, crossing oceans and enemy lines to ensure their patrons were dressed a la mode. Some even carried their own diplomatic passports. Then, in the later part of the 17th century, during Louis XIV's reign, we got fashion plates. These fashion plates were engravings used to mass print fashion illustrations that could then be hand-colored. Fashion plates were the primary medium for circulating information about fashion, particularly fashions of the French aristocracy. Fashion plates were sold to the wealthy by subscription in a series of sets called carriers and served as inspiration for dressmakers and marchands de mode, aka stylists who sold ribbons, trimmings, and other adornments that were used to upcycle old garments. Because yes, a lot of women would just alter their old dresses themselves to fit in with current trends to save money. We don't get dedicated fashion publications until the 1800s. But there are a few early fashion writings that have been discovered. For example, there were some short-lived fashion reviews in Le Courrier Francais in 1649 and Le Mousse Historique in 1658, though most attribute the first fashion publication to the French newspaper, the Mercure Galant. So, the Mercure Galant first launched in 1672 and did not report solely on fashion and mostly covered literary and social events. But in 1678, the newspaper's founder, Jean Denis de Vise, published a special fashion issue. Fashion coverage continued to be a mainstay of the newspaper until its death in 1931. 
What's interesting about the fashion coverage in this newspaper is that uh, Donu Devise actually focused more on town wear as opposed to court dress, which was like what fashion plates were centered on. He often described the accessories, ribbons, jewels, furs, shoes, coats, sleeves, fabrics, colors, caps, hairstyles, and wigs popular among well-born men and women. He also introduced the idea of the fashion season. Though, I would argue that his most important contribution to uh, whatever he was doing <laughs> was that he actually directed all these fashion articles to women, a demographic that was not yet really uh, being targeted. For example, in 1672, he wrote, I had promised you, madame, to inform you of all the new styles. <laughs> But, you know, as I said, it wasn't until the 1800s when the fashion magazine industry took off. And part of the reason was the Industrial Revolution. The Industrial Revolution created both the technological and labor conditions that made mass production and distribution of magazines possible. The job markets grew, so more people could afford magazines and new clothes, which were being produced ready-made by sewing machines in unsafe garment factories run by women, immigrants, and children, unfortunately. In saying that, the exploitation of these not-so-fortunate people ensured that magazines could be produced cheaply. Women at the time also sought out magazines as a form of escapism from their duties of being a housewife. And they were also just bored, you know, lounging around all day. Particularly if they were women of high class and they would already have, like, maids and everyone else to run the household for them. Unlike sports, which was men's business, fashion was closely related to sewing and embroidery and therefore was an acceptable and socially promoted interest for women. Magazines were also good transportation companions. <laughs> Railway travel became cheaper and so there was a greater demand for physically manageable short-term and disposable reading material. Actually, just like design for magazines at a whole at this point was developed uh, to make reading on a train easier. As David Kunzel, historian of the comic strip, writes, multiple images on a page, all scanned in a moment. This is the logic of railway reading, which allowed for variety, distraction, and interruption, for superficial and momentary attention, for looking in a shaking carriage rather than sustained reading. So I feel like I have to talk about Goatee's Ladies Book because it was the first major women's fashion magazine and is still considered to be one of the most significant works of 19th century American publishing. Actually, in 1930, Time Magazine dubbed it by far the most phenomenally successful of any magazine issued before the Civil War. Godey's Ladies Book was first published by Louis Godey, a man, in 1830. But he's not the reason for its success. You see, in 1836, Godey purchased the Boston-based Ladies Magazine, which he merged with his own publication, and Sarah Josepha Hale, who was the editor of Ladies and actually the first female magazine editor, became the new editor of Godey's Ladies Book. She would stay editor there for 40 years. As an aside, she also wrote Mary Had a Little Lamb. So she's a woman with dimension. She has range. Hale was an early feminist and brought attention to the woman's sphere. Her editorial principles circled around shining light on the social inequalities and education of American women. In 1846, Hale stated, The time of action is now. We have to sow the fields. The harvest is sure. The greatest triumph of this progression is redeeming woman from her inferior position and placing her side by side with man, a helpmate for him in all his pursuits. And people loved her work, even if it was expensive. In 1843, subscriptions cost 2 to $3, the equivalent of about $80 in today's currency. So it goes without saying that Godey's was read by a certain class of women. 
While the 19th century made print more accessible to different classes, fashion magazines were still targeted to the upper class. Cheaper penny magazines for the working class rarely focused on fashion, instead promoting semi-religious moral instruction and gothic serials. Whenever fashion showed up in these penny magazines, it was usually framed as unattainable aspirations. It wouldn't be until 1891, with the launch of the Hemsworth periodical Forget-Me-Not, that fashion became more inclusive to the working class. Despite the high price point under Hale's editorship, the magazine grew from 10,000 readers in 1836 to 150,000 by 1860. Goatees became a magazine that entertained, informed, and educated the women of America. It published extensive fashion descriptions and plates, biographical sketches, articles about mineralogy, handcrafts, female costume, the dance, equestrian procedures, health and hygiene, recipes and remedies, and more. And in every issue, there were also two pages of piano sheet music. Over time, Godey's also started publishing extensive book reviews and works by Harriet Beecher Stowe, Edgar Allan Poe, Nathaniel Hawthorne, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, and many other celebrated 19th century authors. So, if you look at surviving Godey's ladies' books, they don't look like today's magazines. They look more like actual books. And the spine is usually made of leather with gold lettering, so it's very expensive looking. The reason was to make these books sturdier because they were meant to be held onto long after their initial publication date. Of course, Godey's wasn't the only female-oriented publication of the time. In the 1860s, literacy rates of boys and girls were almost equal, and by 1890, 65% of high school graduates were girls. So magazines exploded in popularity to feed this hunger for the written word. Women who lived far from bookstores, urban centers, or traditional institutions of learning could even place mail orders for magazines like Frank Leslie's Ladies Magazine and Gazette of Fashion, Graham's Ladies Paper, and The Ladies Friend, among many others. So, similar to how modern-day magazines functioned pre-internet, these 19th-century magazines were there to inform women, specifically women who lived in suburban or rural areas, um, what was happening in the culture, what was happening in fashion, what was happening in the news. They were bringing art, culture, literature, and community to women across the nation. In sum, as Christopher Brewer writes in his article, Femininity and Consumption, better printing equipment, a falling newspaper tax, and rising literacy rates brought magazines to more households. The 1870s and 1880s brought a new variety to the genre, graphics heavy with the focus on women's position in the public world. But despite all these positive developments, there were still a number of downsides. Like, I don't want to over-glamorize or over-romanticize the magazine industry of the 19th century. On top of the exploitation that we talked about already, men were still at the top of this industry. A lot of women who were involved were ghostwriters and often not credited for their contributions. Also, the central idea being pushed by 19th century fashion magazines was to create a feminized consumer culture. So what I mean by that is by the mid-1870s, women were expected to communicate their family's social positions through their clothing and appearance. Many fashion magazines were running stories that glamorized showy clothes and producing illustrations of beautifully dressed women in public spaces, particularly at the department store. The department store, by the way, was not only this shopping oasis for women, it was also a place of socialization, of entertainment, a place where people, where women, could just hang out with their friends, unattended and unescorted by male companions. 
Cameron Walker writes for the NC Wilson College of Textiles, these large, clean, female-staffed emporiums changed society. As shopping became an acceptable hobby, establishments like theaters and restaurants began catering to women too. The taboos against working outside the home began to crumble, and as women inched toward economic freedom, advertisements increasingly targeted them, making magazines prime advertising real estate. What did they exactly write about in fashion magazines of this era? Well, like any kind of product that's on the market, um, magazines tailored the content they were pushing for the women who were reading the content. So for example, in expensive magazines, writers reported on the latest, often Parisian styles. But in lower priced magazines, writers reported on established trends and DIY instructions. In 1852, Isabella and Samuel Beaton founded a domestic magazine for middle-class women called The English Woman's Domestic Magazine. The way the publication approached fashion was through featuring sewing patterns, which were basically instructions on how to make your own clothes. Compare that to Godey's Ladies Book, an expensive fashion magazine, which did sell patterns later on in its run, but was known for featuring fashion plates of the hottest styles in every monthly edition. Something interesting that was happening in the early 20th century was that custom dressmaking was actually on the decline because now designer labels were a status symbol. For example, Charles Worth was highly coveted. Plus, in America, if you were an American woman and you were wearing Paris couture, that was the ultimate flex because not only could you afford this extremely expensive bespoke gown, you could afford to go to Paris. Coco Chanel did not have a store in New York yet. You had to physically go to Paris to get measured for uh, a custom garment made by a designer, stay there for God knows how long, probably like a week, while this dress is being made, and then you can go home. Another development by the 20th century, women were starting to get recognition as writers and contributors to magazines. And you know, I don't wanna make like a sweeping statement and say that there were no women um, involved in magazines and no woman was getting credit because obviously that's not true. Sarah Hale, Godey's Ladies Book is an example of a woman who was clearly a woman <laughs> running a magazine. It's just, it was rare. The magazine industry was still heavily dominated by men and it still was at this point in time. It was just starting to change. One of the prominent female journalists that rose up during this time period was Virginia Pope. She worked at the New York Times from 1925 to 1955 and introduced the news industry to fashion by reporting on Paris haute couture in 1934. This is an email I received. When I was a kid and my family was on welfare, I was obsessed with fashion. My mom, who worked in a supermarket and didn't really have room in the budget for the expensive glossy magazines, would wait for the magazines to be taken off the shelves. Supermarket employees would have to tear off the front covers of the magazines before throwing them away. So every month, I'd get a stack of coverless magazines like Cosmopolitan, Elle, and Vogue. I'd paper my walls with the editorials and ads. Working at one of those publications was my dream job, but when I got my first job in fashion, I was told by multiple people that I didn't have the look. In parentheses, I am fat. And over time, I let that particular dream go. Okay, so I chose this response because one, I think it's friggin' crazy that employees would have to tear off covers of magazines as if to severely lower the desirability of the magazine because they're throwing it out, even though it's already like an old issue. So it's like, ugh, it's such a waste and it's so annoying and gross. And it reminds me about how... Um, when I was in college, I had a couple friends who were really into dumpster diving 
And one thing that they told me is like, there's like all these things that you have to think about when you're doing that because supermarkets will purposely like damage goods so that people can't get like free, quote unquote, free stuff, even though they were going to throw it out anyway. They would destroy products um, before placing them in the dumpster. But even some more heinous things like pouring bleach on food, like really just making these things inedible, even though they were going to the trash anyway. And it's like definitely because these supermarkets feel a type of deranged way about people getting their products for free. And maybe they have this like fear that there's going to be widespread dumpster diving if people find out that they're throwing away perfectly good food in the trash and that they just have to wait a couple days to buy it. I don't know what is going on, but that is really something that pisses me off because there's just so much food waste. And this is actually happening in Canada, but I'm sure it happens in the US too because I went to college in Canada for a little bit. But yeah, it's just like there's so much food waste and there's so many people who don't have access to food and it's ugh, it drives me crazy. But Going back to the magazines thing, yeah, I also chose this response because I feel like it's something really important to think about with the target audience for a lot of these magazines. So, I mean, I'm not white, obviously, and I didn't really see myself represented in magazines at all when I was younger, but I was like thin and um, there were certain things that I could relate to. But I feel like a lot of these magazines and the tide is turning now because, you know, social justice discourse has like permeated around. But I feel like in the 2000s and prior, these magazines weren't necessarily tailoring their magazines based on audiences that existed. They were trying to tailor it to a specific audience that they imagined as their own readers. So for instance, like I feel like a lot of magazines were trying to appeal to like a white, upper class, thin, blonde readership. And obviously a lot of the people who read these magazines don't fit into that demographic, but they want to because that's um, the group that's in power, at least in within the fashion space. So by reading the magazine as a person who's in the out group, you feel like you can belong in the in group, if that makes sense. As I said, things are definitely changing, which is for the better. So I don't know. I think oftentimes when we have nostalgia, we look back at things fondly. And I also think it's important that these industries were still capitalist industries and they were still upholding um, systems of power. They weren't challenging many things. And that's important to keep in mind when it comes to like, when it comes to considering the legacy of these institutions. Moving ahead to the 1940s, the American social climate post-World War II was one of increasing affluence, social conformity, and increased leisure time. And so it's no surprise that fashion magazines aided these social changes. They provided not only a way of communicating one's status, taste, and worldliness, but also of gauging and understanding women's fluctuating interests and roles in society. Fashion magazines like Vogue continued to emphasize European, especially Parisian, fashion to audiences who were becoming more likely buyers, amassing greater wealth and seeking social capital. Teenagers were also growing in independence and getting a little bit of their own disposable income to spend on products and magazines. Seventeen magazine was founded in 1944. It's no longer with us in print, but iconic all the same. 
The publication was the first American magazine created specifically for adolescents with its original mission to encourage teenage girls to become well-rounded human beings. And as I mentioned earlier, fashion magazines uh, were starting to actually work with women in a decent and fair way in the early 20th century, and that only escalated in the mid-20th century. For example, Helen Gurley Brown was famed EIC of Cosmo in the 1960s, the same time that Joan Didion worked for Vogue. Susan Orlean and Gloria Steinem wrote for Glamour, and Betty Friedan's work was published in Good Housekeeping. Even for teen magazines, Seventeen paid to print short stories by Sylvia Plath and Ann Tyler. So I feel like I have to talk about Cosmopolitan, and I know Cosmopolitan was founded in 1886, but the 1960s was their most iconic era, in my opinion. <laughs> Helen Gurley Brown was hired to edit Cosmo in 1965 after gaining notoriety for her autobiographical 1962 bestseller, Sex and the Single Girl. The main idea of the book was to be a self-help guide, to teach unmarried women of the time how to make the most of their single lives, primarily by having a lot of steamy affairs. Her ethos was incredibly modern at the time, though of course there were a lot of points she made that didn't age well. For instance, she promoted finding a hookup at the office, um, she promoted a number of questionable weight loss regimens, and promoted being the other woman to a married man at some point in your single life. Brown believed in equal rights for men and women, but some people would hesitate to call her a feminist. Actually, some second-wave feminists thought her work was hurting the cause. In 1970, Kate Millett led a group of protesters who occupied Brown's offices and demanded that she publish more articles with a feminist perspective. Afterwards, Brown conceded by publishing an excerpt from Millett's manifesto, Sexual Politics. Still, regardless of whether you agree with her or not, her influence was palpable and mirrored the energy of the mid-century sexual revolution and conversations about women's place in society and the responsibility of the press to shed light on these topics. For example, in 1970, about 100 feminists staged a protest by taking over the offices of the Ladies' Home Journal and holding the male editors captive. 1970 seemed to be the year for magazine protests. <laughs> After 11 hours of negotiations, the editor-in-chief decided to give the demonstrators eight full pages in the magazine to devote to whatever they wished. They filled it with articles such as Your Daughter's Education and Babies Are Born, Not Delivered. One article even described housework as domestic slavery. And whether you agree with Brown or not, she had a massive amount of influence. For sales, Brown boosted Cosmo's circulation from three quarters of a million to three million. At the time she left, Cosmo was earning Hearst around $50 million per year. Another notable development in the 1950s and 60s was the decline of mass market large general interest magazines and the rise of special interest magazines. So some mass market publications include Life, as I mentioned, Collier's, Ladies Home Journal, and Reader's Digest. Special interest magazines that rose up in the mid-century include Avant-Garde, New Scientist, and Sports Illustrated. So what was the reason for this shift? Well, for one, there were a number of economic factors that came into play. In the 1960s, mass market publication was competing with television. As journalism professor David Abrahamson writes, during the 1960s, TV's share of the national advertising expenditures more than doubled, which directly reduced both the price of magazine ads and advertisers' interest in buying space in magazines. Computers were also becoming a thing in the 1960s, so I don't know if you've watched Mad Men. I feel like I'm always plugging Mad Men, but it's literally like, I think, my favorite TV show of all time. 
If you watched Mad Men, you'll remember that there's a scene where they bring in a computer for the office and it's massive and everyone's freaking out about it and one of the characters actually goes crazy and never returns. I later read that the reason he disappeared was because he got a better job. Like he got like a main character role somewhere on another TV show so he had to leave Mad Men and that was just the storyline they ran with him losing his mind slowly because he was getting paranoid that uh, technology was gonna replace humans. But computer technology in the 1960s led to the evolution of proprietary research in market segmentation by lifestyle, attitudes, and behaviors. Ad agencies started to really specify on the demographics that they wanted to advertise to. So for instance, rather than inventing a product and then finding customers for it, agencies were now first studying the customers and then making what the customers wanted. And what ad agencies were finding out is that it was actually much more profitable for a camera company like Nikon to advertise their cameras in specialized photography magazines like US Camera than to advertise in just a general interest magazine like The New Yorker. Also at the same time, major advantages in printing technology greatly reduced the cost of producing a magazine. Specifically, the computerization of typesetting and color separation processes created reduced per copy manufacturing costs. In other words, in the early 20th century, publishers were printing large print runs to be cost effective, basic economies of scale. But now, because costs were not so high to produce a magazine, it was actually more cost effective to produce small circulation magazines. So let's fast forward to the 1980s and 90s, which is arguably the peak of fashion magazines' relevance and clout. Editors of major publications were dubbed as tastemakers and treated like celebrities. They had the power to make or break the careers of up-and-coming designers and models. And yes, this was the era of the supermodel as well. Watch my video on the supermodel for more on that, but just in general, cover shots became all the more prestigious. 2000s chick flick movies, The Devil Wears Prada, 13 Going on 30, and How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days showcased the status and reputation of the 90s era fashion magazine industry as a highly coveted place to work at, and with the editor as the highest step of the ladder. In the words of former deputy editor of Vanity Fair, Dana Brown, it was the age of the glossy magazine and the celebrity editor. They were the arbiters of taste, translators of culture and style to the culture and style hungry masses. They decided what was cool, what was important, what was necessary, what made it onto their pages, what people would be talking about, watching, reading, wearing, thinking. He also told the New York Times, there were so many magazines in 1994, so many new magazines and so many great magazines. All the young talent of the moment was eschewing other industries and flocking to the business. It was the coolest place to be. But of course, these industries were never as glamorous as they seemed. Um, even in The Devil Wears Prada, the main character, Andy, who works as the assistant to this fashion editor, editor-in-chief, Miranda Priestly, she ends up leaving the industry at the end of the movie because she kind of like sobers up to the reality of how damaging the industry is to her own mental health. And also just like as a side note, I know that there's always like this discussion about how the real villain of the Devil Wears Prada was um, her boyfriend who was unsupportive of her joining this fashion magazine. I think he's annoying. I don't think she should have stayed with him, but I do think that's like an oversimplification of the story because Andy didn't want to work in a fashion magazine. She didn't want to do it. Like that wasn't something she was dreaming of. She wanted to work at a normal like paper covering news. So I feel like her leaving the fashion business and going to do that is a good thing because 
that's what she wanted to do from the beginning. You know what I mean? Anyways. <laughs> Francesca Mari actually wrote a really good article on the assistant economy back in 2015 for Descent Magazine. And in this article, she discusses what the job actually entails, like what being an assistant is actually like. And she talks about how in a lot of these movies and novels and memoirs that are written from like the POV of an assistant, this type of media glamorize the realities of what the job actually is. And she says something really crazy here, like I have to read this quote. She writes, This mythologizing is relentless and trifling, but it fills a real need. The need to justify your job by making your boss as big and as marvelous as possible. And that, after all, is what the boss always wanted. This is an email I received. I first read a fashion magazine when I was eight and at my aunt's place, an issue of Vogue. Since then, fashion magazines and fashion have been a constant part of my life. As magazines more and more made the move to digital, I remember constantly checking my feed on various apps and sites for new articles. Growing up visibly queer in the countryside wasn't always the most pleasant experience. I loved dressing up in fashion in general from a young age. I often felt alone, but through fashion magazines, I could escape in a different world. A world that gave me hope for the future. I kind of have the same relationship with fashion magazines as Nigel from The Devil Wears Prada. That one scene where he calls a runway a beacon of hope. Sincerely, Ezra. Just for reference, I'm going to put here the um, clip from The Devil Wears Prada when Nigel uh, talks about fashion magazines. You think this is just a magazine? Hmm? This is not just a magazine. This is a shining beacon of hope for... Oh, I don't know. Let's say a young boy growing up in Rhode Island with six brothers pretending to go to soccer practice when he was really going to sewing class and reading Runway under the covers at night with a flashlight. You have no idea how many legends have walked these halls. And what's worse, you don't care. Because this place where so many people would die to work, you only deign to work. It's so interesting for me to read about people's relationships with fashion magazines because, you know, I've gotten a lot of submissions where people were like, I didn't like them. I felt excluded. I felt like this magazine was pushing a femininity that was toxic towards my own ideals. And then on the other side of it, I got a lot of messages from people who were like, I felt like fashion magazines were an escape from my life. Um, I felt like it, they were a way for me to channel my interests, my uh, passions that were not necessarily acceptable by people in my community. And usually a lot of those answers that I got that were more positive came from trans women and other queer people who grew up in not so welcoming environments. And I also think what's important to consider is that a lot of these fashion magazines also illustrated guidelines on how to be a woman. And a lot of the times they were really oppressive in that sense because they were very strict on what was considered feminine and what was considered not. But I think if you were growing up in a household where your parents were not going to give you these tools, then fashion magazines were considered to be like little guidebooks. And that could be really comforting. So why are print fashion magazines dying? 
Well, we can definitely blame the internet. <laughs> Because before the internet, magazines had exclusive insights about what trends were going to come up, exclusive commentary about runway shows, and exclusive coverage of celebrities and public figures at fashion events. Now with the internet, anyone with a big or small brain can say anything they want about anything related to fashion. They can predict what fashion trends exist, and even celebrities themselves can post whatever photos of them at an event, they can put their own commentary, they can say whatever they want about a fashion show to an audience directly from their Instagram accounts or their TikTok accounts or their podcasts. And the thing with runway shows, they used to be held twice a year for a closed shop of editors and buyers who would reveal their carefully considered vision of trends to readers and customers a few months down the line. Now, runway shows are live-streamed, and photographs of shows are immediately disseminated, and so consumers know exactly what clothes will be hitting shelves. Runway shows have also become, in my opinion, less like industry-related events, especially with the number of celebrities and influencers that are sitting front row in attendance, and yes, I realize I have benefited from that, I am guilty of that. Um, and I'm thankful for that at the same time. But, you know, at least I pay attention. At least I pay attention. <laughs> I've been to a couple shows um, where people don't pay attention. And actually, specifically, this one show I will remember very well because I was sitting next to this woman who was an influencer from Europe. And she had brought along her assistant to the show. And the entire time, she was posting a photo on Instagram. She was like writing a caption because these fashion shows, they only last like a couple minutes. You know, it doesn't take that long for the girls to be revolving around. And this particular show didn't have that many looks. So it went by really fast. Anyways, she was just like typing on her little phone while her assistant was recording the entire show. She did not look up once from her phone. At that point, I'm like, why are you even going? Other than I guess to like flex that you've gone to your audience, but if you're not enjoying your time, if you're not actually paying attention to the collections, then what's the point? Like there are tons of other people who would love to be sitting there. But my point is that the presence of influencers and celebrities shows the shift from fashion shows being just about new collections for the next season and more about the spectacle. It's marketing for the brand as a whole. A lot of buyers don't even go to actual fashion shows anymore. They go to buying appointments. And with influencers and even publications recording and posting photos of the show, there's less mystique. And so anyone who comes across these videos or comes across these photos can have an opinion and say their opinion online. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I think democratization of fashion is actually a really positive thing but it does explain why there's less prestige in fashion journalism among the general public. Founder and EIC of the Business of Fashion, Imran Ahmed says, the one thing that has changed dramatically in recent years is the direct relationship brands now have with their consumers. In this new hierarchy, the consumer has the ability to amplify or negatively impact business through sharing positive or negative responses. Once, brands and magazines dictated what we should buy. Now, consumers are telling us what they like and want and the power structure has been turned on its head. I also think that another reason, maybe perhaps more controversial reason, that there's a decline in magazines is because a lot of the content being published today is just not revolutionary. Or it's just, it's just bad, it's not even good sometimes. Magazines often rely on publishing the same kind of content that they've been publishing for years now. Dieting tips, heteronormative dating advice, recycled makeup tips that we've seen over and over again. 
Like this is all just very boring content and it just hasn't aged well. Yet magazines are often too risk adverse to change it up. Professor Harriet Brown says, the magazine's insistence on the status quo, even as womanhood changed dramatically, led them to irrelevance. In an era of radical body acceptance and upteenth wave feminism, I don't want to read 2,500 articles a year on how to lose 10 pounds or get rid of my love handles. It's reductive and it's superficial. Also, this desire to be like the first publication to cover a specific topic has led to a lot of journalists like lazily relying on unchecked sources, which has led to overall a decline in accuracy and quality within magazine articles. In a lot of these magazines' heydays, part of the reason why they were so respected was because they covered groundbreaking material. For example, in 1966, Glamour was the first fashion magazine to feature a black woman, Katiti Karande, as the cover model, a gesture towards inclusion amid the civil rights movement. And in 1976, dozens of editors of women's and teen magazines agreed to cover the Equal Rights Amendment, with stories that would reach their collective 60 million readers. I think it's also important to note that for these articles, there were lots of fact checkers on board. Journalist Andrea Bartz says, the old magazines had a team of people whose job was to verify every detail in the magazine. Everything those magazines were telling me about at the time, nutrition or sexual assault statistics or mental health, it was coming from legitimate sources and it was verified by the staff there. While I think there is this kind of gradual push for fashion magazines to cover groundbreaking cultural news, like for instance, um, InStyle was publishing a lot about the anti-Asian hate crimes, Cosmopolitan was covering Roe v. Wade. There is an issue with fact-checking because every magazine wants to be the first to cover something because they want the most eyes on their article. And so there's like this rush that wasn't necessarily there for a print magazine because you had to still wait like until the next morning to be able to print something or you would have to wait to the end of the week or the end of the month because um, it just depends how many issues your magazine would publish a year. And I think the expediency that's required to publish content now has also led to a lot of like outsourcing facts from social media and not like looking deeper into those facts and to see whether or not they're like actually facts. And ultimately, magazines make their money through advertising. Regardless of the medium, advertising is the profit driver. And advertisers don't want to advertise unless there are a certain number of people buying the issues guaranteed every time they come up. Or if you're publishing online, there has to be a high click engagement. This ends up driving editors to publish content only about established subjects, models, and designers and away from creativity and up-and-comers. Hence why the Kardashians are just like ever-present. But let's talk more about advertising. So the thing with internet advertising is that it is much easier to track than print advertising. Companies that purchase web advertisements can see exactly how many people are clicking through. They can measure the impact of their ad and therefore calculate how much money they are making back from publishing this ad. This advancement both exploits audience data and also makes digital advertising way more lucrative and way more worthy of investing in than print advertising. And with internet publishing becoming more lucrative and more omnipresent, um, a lot of publications have resorted to coming up with more creative ideas to get people to click on links which has actually led a lot of people to distrust these publications. One example that raised a lot of eyebrows was Refinery29's Money Diary series. 
This was a series where they would profile the spending habits of a different anonymous person every few days. Joe Livingstone wrote a pretty scathing critique of it and actually the entire website on The New Republic back in 2018. They wrote, Refinery29's My Identity section, for example, featured an article titled, How Fashion Helps These Three People Express Pride. It's an ad for H&M, dressed up as an article about queer and trans people finding their voice through clothing. There's also the old secret style language of the LGBTQ community, a mere click away from an advertisement by free people on what to wear to an outdoor summer concert. The article was inspired by internet pushback towards one Money Diaries entry from July 2018 with the headline, A Week in New York City on $25 an Hour, which was later changed to A Week in New York City on $25 an Hour and $1,000 monthly allowance. The original headline was misleading because it's revealed that uh, the profile girl's parents paid her $2,100 monthly rent, her tuition, phone bill, health insurance bills, and gave her an extra $1,100 in allowance every month. The virality of this piece opened up a whole can of worms with people criticizing the series as a whole, with some even theorizing that The Money Diaries was fake to begin with and was just a clever way to feature sponsored brands. Regardless of whether that's true or not, Livingstone condemns the way women's publications have gone about advertising. They write, The difference between today's women's media scam and yesterday's is that the advertising is now hiding in native content, and the scummy clickbait is packaged better. Instead of sitting in a box next to a trashy article about celebrities, lucrative advertising these days lurks inside content that simulates ethical feminist journalism. Unfortunately, I think while we like to criticize editors and even writers for this kind of content shift, they have to do what they can to survive. It's sort of the same deal with YouTube. <laughs> like, I feel like there's so many topics I would love to discuss, but I have to create this like balancing act where I have content that I think is really like wide reaching, a trending topic that's going to get me guaranteed views and therefore guaranteed money to pay all my bills and everything. And then balancing it with esoteric niche content that I actually do really wanna talk about, but I know is not gonna get me the same number of clicks. Whether you wanna get more fit, be a better parent, or get more done at work, there is one thing that will help, and that's better sleep. With Miracle Made Sheets, you can tap into the power of self-cooling temperature regulation, which has been shown to improve deep sleep quality by over 20%. I love these sheets. They have a luxe, glossy feel to them, and they're also infused with silver, ooh, fancy, which prevents up to 99.7% of bacterial growth, leaving them to stay cleaner and fresh three times longer than other sheets. It's better for your skin, especially if you have the habit of delaying laundry day. Go to trymiracle.com slash Mina to try Miracle Made Sheets today. And with Mother's and Father's Day right around the corner, this is the perfect way to give someone you love the gift of better and more luxurious sleep. Save over 40% and be sure to use our promo code Mina at checkout to save even more and get three free towels. Miracle is so confident in their product Product. It's backed with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so if you aren't 100% satisfied, you'll get a full refund. Upgrade your sleep with Miracle Made. Go to trymiracle.com mina and use the code mina to claim your free three-piece towel set and save over 40% off. Again, that's trymiracle.com mina to treat yourself. Thank you, Miracle Made, for sponsoring this episode. So I grew up in Taiwan, so we were like heavily influenced by like the Japanese magazine back in the 2000s. I remember when I was a kid, I really enjoyed reading this Japanese like high school magazine called Poppin, P-O-P-T-E-E-N. 
And then when I was like slightly older, you know, like 16 and 17, I started reading the other Japanese magazine called Vivi, C-I-C-I. They might seem like great, you know, and then cool or all, but at the same time, it's like they only like to use a mixed model, you know, like have Japanese, have something model. So now what I think about it, it's kind of weird, but yeah, those magazines were great. Oh my gosh, I'm so um, excited about this particular voicemail because it sent me down this little like side research loop about um, mixed Japanese models um, in Japanese magazines and in Japanese media in general. Because it's something that I've been aware of as someone who's like, I've never been to Japan, but I have leafed through a bunch of their magazines and I'm familiar with some Japanese brands. And I do notice that they usually have either white models or half white models, half Japanese models marketing these products. And so I was trying to look into it because I was like, why is that the case? And it's interesting. I came across this one article from this book. The article is called Hypervisibility and Invisibility of Female Hafu Models in Japan's Beauty Culture and is written by Kaori Mori Want. And in it, the uh, writer kind of goes into perception of half-white, half-Japanese women throughout um, the 20th century. And basically, like, in the mid-century around World War II, it was a big taboo to be hafu, which is the term for a half-Japanese person. And that was because um, hafu kids were stereotyped as being born out of these relationships between Japanese women and American servicemen. And the Japanese women who had these kids were looked down upon as sex workers, even if that wasn't always the case. But, you know, either way, we shouldn't be looking down at sex workers, but you know what I mean. And it was only like, throughout the decades following when Western culture started becoming imported into Japan and as Japan and as Japanese citizens, specifically like younger generations, stopped caring about post-war tensions with America, that's when it became commodifiable to be hafu in Japanese marketing and entertainment. It became more profitable because even though the population of mixed race people has increased steadily in Japan, they are still a minority. So in a way, it's like kind of this fetishization of someone who looks different, but still Japanese. And by the way, like it's really only profitable for half white mixed uh, Japanese kids. Like if you're half African or half like another um ethnicity in Asia, it's people are more likely to still look down on you, which is a bad thing, but it is um, the reality. And I'm not saying that like half white kids don't get bullied anymore. I'm just saying that they are a standard of beauty, even if it is like an exoticized standard of beauty. I also read in this article that there are um, fashion magazines that will publish articles telling you how to achieve a hafu look. In this one particular article, the cosmetician Toshihito Tamura demonstrates how to make a typical Japanese face look like hafu. The author writes, All girls want to have big eyes, a face with chiseled features, a small face, and full lips. They admire the hafu face. If you feel it is impossible to have the hafu face, Tamura will make your dreams come true. And responding to Japanese girls' dreams, or these so-called Japanese girls' dreams, Tamura shows readers how to transform their face. And then Juan also mentions this photo book uh, called Life as a Golden Half, which featured 11 Hafu models. And of course, they were all white female Hafu models. 
The book cover declared that, quote, the life of Hafu models is shining. They are all girls' objects of admiration. So yeah, I'm getting a little sidetracked from the main thesis of this episode, um, which is focused on American fashion magazines. But I would really like to thank the person who um, called in because I think it's always interesting to know about how fashion magazines operate in different cultures. And even though you said you lived in Taiwan, I also think it's interesting that the magazines that were exported over there were Japanese magazines. And I'm curious to know if there were any um, American magazines that also were popular in Taiwan. I also assume that the Japanese magazines were just written in Japanese, like they weren't translated um, over when they were exported. So it's interesting that in America, you can't really find any magazines that are not written in English here. I don't know if you can find Vogue magazines from other countries, but I do know that like Chinese Vogue and all the other Vogues actually, they, they slay. So uh, if you can get your hands on one, I would definitely recommend picking up one of those over an issue of American Vogue just because the editorial sections tend to just be like out of this world. So although the print industry is dying on a large scale level, something cool is that there have been tons of zines erupting in the indie sphere. For anyone who doesn't know, a zine is short for fanzine or magazine, and it is a self-published periodical. Zines are produced independent of corporate interests and concerns, and so they offer a space for everyday individuals to communicate ideas and opinions. As Aaron Rushing wrote for Smithsonian Magazine, zines are celebrations of self-expression. These unique documents often combine first-person narratives and frank opinion pieces with interviews, reviews, and musings on art, music, and culture. But zines have existed longer before the 21st century. You could argue that they go all the way back to America's so-called founding fathers. In the 1700s, these old guys were publishing broadsides, which were one-page disposable handbills that were printed quickly and cheaply in order to rapidly disseminate news regarding the Revolutionary War. Some broadsides called the public to enlist or aid in feeding American troops, while others helped propagandize the war effort with poetry and song. They were often posted on trees, tavern walls, and lampposts in public spaces, with some even read aloud. A hundred or so years later, in 1876, the National Amateur Press Association was founded in Philadelphia with the aim of fostering totally independent journalism and sharing the skills needed to physically print materials. The NAPA is still in operation today, just one of many APA organizations that continually publish work that might have otherwise never seen daylight. Then in the 1920s, within the literary movement of the Harlem Renaissance, writers including Langston Hughes and Zora Neale Hurston published little magazines to express their ideas. Kelly Jensen wrote for Book Riot, Little magazines allowed space for not just poetry and prose, but also for essays of radicalism, of experimental writing, and for space for subversion. Many of the magazines included critiques of not just the established, read, white, culture, but they also were unafraid to comment upon the work of other black leaders. Little magazines were founded by individuals or small groups of creatives, and they were bastions of independence from the established literary culture. Some of the earliest zines as we recognize them today were produced as amateur science fiction, literary magazines, and fanzines in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Mimographs and cyanide-based printing techniques made reproduction possible without a bulky, expensive printing press. For many sci-fi writers in the first half of the 20th century, these small-scale publications were the natural place to test out wild ideas before finding their voice and publishing stories in large magazines. The social nature of these zines, which promoted dialogue between publisher and reader, 
incubated the earliest forms of fan culture. Other inspirations for 21st century American zines include the little magazines produced by 1950s and 60s beat poets, 1970s punk zines, which spread information about new bands and politics and cemented punk designs and graphics, and 90s alt-women's zines inspired by the Riot Girl movement, which championed the coalescing of music, subculture, punk, feminist, and DIY ideals. Zines became so synonymous with feminism and female alt music in the 90s that the new American Girl doll representing 1999 comes with her own miniature magazine. This is all to say that zines have a history and still continue to promote alternative subcultural ideas in a DIY type of format. Combine that with nostalgia for analog mediums and it makes total sense why zines are cropping up. Christopher Kelly wrote for Culted last year. Gen Z is reviving certain cultural sectors that embody the antithesis of the internet age, combating the constant intrusion of virtual worlds on our lives by returning to the tactile world of vinyls, books, and now magazines. So I love print magazines. I love their fun layouts. I love the graphic designs. I love like the glossy photographs. I just love magazines. There's just like a certain pizzazz. A certain, dare I say, romance that online magazines don't have. I think Shante Cosme, editor-in-chief of Mike Magazine, puts it perfectly. Print has a languorous feeling to it, and I think that's a good thing. Magazines should encourage slow, thoughtful reading and aim to be more literary than informative. They should be brimming with stimulating images and ideas that invite reflection and encourage close reading. Magazines should interrogate and provoke, inspire us to shake off the dullness of the everyday. They should get us feeling strange emotions and thinking existential thoughts in a cafe at noon on a Saturday. I think the major struggle that magazines are dealing with is the fact that information travels so fast now and trends come and go so quickly. What was relevant last week may not be relevant again this week. So to create a print magazine these days, you have to be really careful. You have to really consider what is going to have relevance by the time this magazine comes out on shelves, which, you know, it sometimes takes weeks. It sometimes takes months to create a print magazine. But I think also like because of this challenge, it allows print magazines to come up with something really, truly special, something that does have that kind of cultural longevity something that people will leaf through and revisit for months after the initial publication. As Anna Winter says, well, I think that it's very important to make the print publications even more luxurious and even more special just to differentiate us from everything else that's out there. Print publications have to be as luxurious an experience as possible. You have to feel it coming off the page. You have to see photographs and pieces that you couldn't possibly see anywhere else. Hello, Mian. Hi, Mina. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yes. Hi, everyone. My name is Mian. I'm a friend of Mina's. We met for the first time at Skin Contact Bar in New York. Do you remember? Oh that? yeah, no, we when did. We had that it really good so dark rosé. Nice. But I think you like um, slid into my DMs. Yeah, I did. Um, Mian used to do YouTube videos for was it Refinery Twenty Nine? Yes. Nothing compared to. Gremlita. Going back to it. I'm Mian. <laughs> I live in New York. I am work-wise a senior director of programming at programming and development. Technically, it's the longest title, which 
means no one knows ever what it means for Teen Vogue and them, which are two digital publications under the Condé Nast umbrella. Condé Nast owns like Vogue, The New Yorker, GQ, Bon Appetit. I'm also the founding editor of Mixed Feelings, which is a kind of newsletter plus social brand under Condé Nast. I have two cats. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, very cool. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how you got to where you are now? I went to school at NYU. I ended up interning at Refinery, which turned into a beauty editorial job. And from there, I I started helping out with video. I ended up kind of learning the video ropes there. I started hosting a show at Refinery29. And from there, after I left about five years in, I went to Condé to direct pilots. And then after doing that for about a a year, I got my position where I am now, where I oversee video for Teen Vogue and them. And then I pitched my brand Mixed Feelings to them two years ago. Um, Okay, so since you've been working in the magazine industry for a while now, how do you feel like it has changed, um, especially with the presence of social media? I think that it's changed in a lot of ways. So I will say that I can only speak really from a digital perspective. POV because by the time I went into magazines around 2013, 2014, 2015, so many magazines were already um, shuttering, right? So most of the publications I've worked at had already shut their print arm. Mm-hmm. I worked at W as an intern for a, a semester and they still had print. And that was a much slower pace of life. I mean, it was really fun because you you would like walk through the magazine and you would check all the, they would make multiple printouts of it. But then once you move into digital, that's when things like um, story quotas came into place. Like we have to be hitting a certain number of page views and site visitors. So we need to up the number of content, right? So when I started at Refinery, my story quota went from... 26 a month to at what one point 60 stories a month and it became really difficult not every digital media brand has quotas but many of them do of like what you're supposed to hit so that's one way that I feel like it changed and I feel like that's related to social because you know we have these things called owned and operated so that's like the websites so teambo.com them.us refining29.com that's like our owned and operated website mm-hmm. then there's like everywhere we distribute the content so facebook twitter snapchat discover all those things and so we get obviously a lot of reach from the other platforms and so scaling up and publishing more in my opinion there's a lot of like you know you sp- you everyone hears that you should be publishing tiktok twice three times a day but yeah I think it's changed a lot in terms of like the output social media has changed the output of digital media in my opinion it's also changed things I think in a positive way in the sense of like multimedia storytelling I think we're at a place I think a really good example is something we did just a few weeks ago for trans day of visibility um my team oversaw this incredible video we put together where we had a lot of like allies and lgbtqia like queer celebrities and activists read a script written by one of our writers that's essentially a message to America and trans youth. And that video was part of a larger package that included lots of resources in the site, features, social media, all this thing. So we had this real 360 moment to make a lot of impact in a lot of different places where our audiences live. And I think that's definitely a way that 
and I find that very exciting as someone who like has done the editorial side and writing stuff, but I also have done video and I've also done social. It's fun to be able to think about packages and see packages that way. And Sarah Burke and Danny, Sarah Burke is the editor in chief of them. And Danny Quatang is the executive editor interim EIC at Teen Vogue. And they're also very interested in that kind of multimedia storytelling. And I think that's very impactful. How do you uh, maintain a sense of authenticity when publishing stories like that? Because I know that like with a lot of uh, people online, the way that they respond to corporations, um, doing any type of activism is usually with cynicism. So yeah, how do you kind of still connect with these people? Yeah, I think I think for them especially, it did not feel out of place because we publish a lot of queer news, but we are also really on the pulse of what's happening with trans people in America. And so it didn't feel out of place to have that because we are interviewing Chase Strangio and like drag queens all the time about like, you know, drag bands and what do people not understand about drag as an art form, talking about like anti-trans re- like legislation that's happening across the U.S., so it didn't feel out of place. And so does Team Vogue, frankly. So I think that it wasn't like we were popping out of nowhere with this. Mm-hmm. Um, not to say that we did not get a lot of hate for it. Um, but we also, honestly, we were surprised. There was so much support. I think also because of like our reach as magazines, we were able to get really incredible talent. Like Bella Ramsey was in it, who was mm-hmm. in The Last of Us. Elliot Page was in it. And we actually ended up having a lot of really great support. But I also think a really big piece of that is that it wasn't just the activism video. I think that if it was just the activism video, it might have come off a little bit like, why are you doing this? But we did like, like I said, we did this 360 package. There was a landing page with dozens of resources on how you can help and we've and like other feature reporting so i think that it felt more authentic that way because we were really providing resources and education mm-hmm. um so were you with teen vogue when they started making this pivot towards more like social political pieces i was not actually so teen vogue in my understanding of the history of it it was actually f- a few years before I started. So around when like Elaine Welteroth and Philip Bacardi were at the home of Teen Vogue, when they started doing a lot more political coverage, they like, I think they assigned that gaslighting piece that went viral Mm -hmm. at the time. And they also did like incredible covers with gun violence survivors and stuff like that. So that's, and now our editor in chief, Versha Sharma is like, comes from a politics background. She used to be at Now This and she was like the news, I think, I I believe the newsroom editor. Uh And so that politics has become a really important piece of Teen Vogue. Yeah, it's so interesting because like, I remember growing up with Teen Vogue and like I would have like the tiny little magazines and it was so like heavily lifestyle focused. Yeah, it was, ha- it was like seven ways to kiss. Yeah. <laughs> and then I forget, I don't know what year it was, but I remember someone like sending me this like really good um, social uh, article essay that Teen Vogue put out on their digital platform. And I was like, this is posted on Teen Vogue? Yeah, it must <laughs> have been around 2015, 2016. Okay, that makes total sense. Yeah, I think, I think it that was, was like around the time. Exactly. And I mean, this year in the midterm elections, like Gen Z really like helped sweep. Mm-hmm. Um, we've done a lot of incredible work 
the politics team's amazing. Um, did like an entire big, huge feature in December on like the youth activism industrial complex and like mm-hmm. what it's like to be a youth activist. So I think that the politics side of things is definitely a huge piece of like the Team Vogue heart. What was the reason for that shift? Do you know? Like, was it specifically to appeal to a newer generation or was it because um, Teen Vogue felt like there was a, a corporate responsibility to diverge from like the dating, the dieting type of content that used to be part of what they were all about? Yeah, I can't speak to what they were thinking at the time, but the way that I see the reason why we do this is because young people care about mm-hmm. politics and you know if during the 2016 election i think it was very clear that young people cared yet that said young people also have very low percentages of voting mm. and so i think i can't speak for what they were thinking at the time but if i were there at the time i would have been like i think we do have a responsibility to be like it's it's a dis- doing young people a disservice to say they don't care about politics right um and so and clearly it worked i think something that we do on the on the video side that like is a big goal for me and my team this year is like i use the term aging up but that's not the correct way to say it it's like giving young people more serious insights right i don't think that they that young people just want to watch games all the time, right? And I think, why pander down? So going back to the uh, intensity of working in digital, did you ever want to switch to print because of that? Or are you, do you feel like there's something that working in digital brings to you that you can't get anywhere else? I never wanted to switch to print because I didn't think it was an option mm. because by like I said be, be the by the time I really got into digital media so many magazines were shuttering their print arms and I would love to have a hand in making a zine and like I have had my writing printed before but I just think I'm too realistic to <laughs> to be like I want to do only print. I mean that said, like a lot of magazines in, in Condé Nast, Vogue, GQ, Bonapartee still and Vanity Fair still have print arms, and I love reading them. But I don't think I would ever switch to fully personally to fully print. I would always want to do a little bit of both because I do think that there's a lot of reactiveness that you can have on digital. Mm-hmm. You can cover things real time. And also I work in video. So that's also right. inherently digital medium. We kind of, my team oversees like the TikToks for both, for both um, Team Vogue and them. And so I do kind of enjoy, like we do a lot of premiere coverage and we get to go to cover events and do video reporting that way. Like I sent one of our um, report video reporters to the Trump indictment the other day. Like that's stuff that you can do in real time because it's a digital brand, digital, for, digital first brand. Um, but I do love magazines and I think they do hold a lot of value and I really don't want them to all shudder. My personal opinion is I think the people who are doing, doing magazines need to offer something that digital doesn't, which is like a really beautiful experience. Like the GQ covers are so good. Mm-hmm. The Robert Pattinson one. Oh my God, that one was really it was so good. <laughs> people, there was some contention online about it. Why? I think people didn't, I think people it was a different cover, right? But I loved how transformative it was. And that's what I want from print, right? I yeah. want things to be transformative. I want to see celebrities in a different way. 
Right. I love the um, Anne Hathaway interview magazine cover. Yes. Did you see that with like yes. the weights and stuff? Yes. I feel like some of some of them are like, like I want print to, to almost be an escape. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because like when I was talking to people who have like a strong memory of like reading these print magazines, it's like people would collect them and they would be like an archive yes. and then you would revisit them. Versus, like, I feel now with digital content, unless it's something that's, like, more featurey and timeless, like, you don't really revisit a webpage that you've already read. Yeah. Which, I don't know. <laughs> no, no, I completely agree. I mean, I also really like New York Magazine. They're, like, not as, I mean, I guess collectible is a, is a subjective term, but, like, they're, like, they publish much more frequently, but I really like reading features in that format where they're mm. they're very long, like, 2,000, 3,000-word features. Yeah. And I really enjoyed it. How do you think legacy magazine brands are doing in comparison with these, like, influencers when it comes to beauty and fashion content? Do you feel like there's still a significant audience online that is looking specifically to a magazine's advice when there are so many people who are just trying to put advice out themselves? Yeah. I think there is still an audience for it. And I think that, I mean, Allure is a really good example of that. But I think that the thing that they do differently is they have a lot of exclusive access to experts. They do interviews. I think they provide a different experience. I think my personal opinion on how how we can do beauty and fashion, especially for like Team Vogue, which is something that we do want to kind of get into, is by kind of returning to this like peek behind the curtain. Mm -hmm. So we have a new series that's launching for Team Vogue on social in the next few months. It's called The Market Report. And it's kind of like everything I called in for my lip plumper story or my boots for wide calves story and so it's almost like part unboxing part try on part which ones made the cut in my final story thing and we're hoping that that will give people a little bit of insight into the work that goes into a market story but also like a peek at what it's like to be an editor We'll see. I hope. I think it's a really cute concept. The, um, Ayana, who's the editorial assistant at Team Vogue, is hosting the first episode. She's incredible. So then we also work. Well, you know, there's one thing which is like a peek behind the curtain at what it's like to be an editor. But then there's also like the access, and I think that media brands are poised to offer the reader. I don't want to say more or less, just something different than mm-hmm. like your than than what else is out there because of the access, right? So we work with incredible celebrities, incredible creators and influencers and different like digital media personalities, digital personalities. And like, for example, you did the fashion week Instagram story for us and like, (laughs) yeah, so cute. And we also work with people all the time. Like we just worked with Jisoo from Blackpink Mm. and that is coming out, actually came out today. And I think that is a way into beauty for us that like, is that access that, that we can provide in an interesting way. And, I, and our audience loves entertainment. Like, they're very interested mm-hmm. in, in, in entertainment. Right. Like, I think, I mean, Teen Vogue and Vogue have, like, a slightly different audience. But I've noticed with, like, Vogue's YouTube channels, like, there are videos where it's, like, seven days a week, seven looks um, with some celebrity. Like, they always get so many views on that. I know. we. I mean, they do. They do get huge views. I mean, we... Speaking to the audience like they're Taking serious them human beings, <laughs> um, we have this new show that 
um, me and Logan Sugita, my team, piloted called Character Study, which I think is a really good example of we still have the fun like truth or dare concepts and like fun things that we do for like casts and group things on our on our YouTube channel. But then we also have this show which is called Character Study and it's like basically like Sharitha Chandran on becoming Edwina Sharma in Bridgerton. And it's mm. like formatted in such a way that it's like the audition, the prep, the stunts, oh. the memorization, first day on set, stuff like that. And so they basically just go through everything it took for them to embody and become a create become a character and it just shows like the incredible work that young actors are doing and that is one of our most popular shows we did one with jenna ortega on becoming wednesday that's where like if you saw that that clip of like i don't i didn't blink at all yes that was from our video we got, we, got, we got that exclusive, <laughs> exclusive soundbite. I'm so proud of that series. And I think that is a perfect example of what I'd like to do more with video across Team Vogue and them. And then for them, you know, same thing. We have a lot of amazing access. And we I, we also, my team also piloted a show called, called Becoming, which is essentially like queer actors, musicians, artists going through their career journey through the lens of their queerness. And so we've done Dove Cameron. She talked a lot about like growing up with Disney and then to now, like after she came out, was on the cover of Gave Time. Same thing with Raven Simone. We did it with Billy Eichner. Like, and so, yeah, I think it's been really cool being able to do interviews like that. And, and that's I, all access. Yeah. And I feel like also um, doing journeys, like life journey, career journeys, like that is a really interesting thing for Teen Vogue because I feel like younger people are so lost or they don't know what to do. And I know when I was like a teenager, I didn't even know what any job I wanted to do actually entailed. So I think like going in and kind of getting into the nitty gritty also helps people determine like what they want to do with their life in a way that's way more informed than when you would get from like a career center. Yeah, and it's like it I feel like something we love to talk about is like specificity and detail. Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh, tell us about um how you became Edwina Sharma, but like what exactly was on your playlist that you listened to before you get on set or like we have this show called The Lead Up and we inter- we did a it was like a week before big NASCAR races for this 22-year-old race car driver called Tony Bredinger and like it, they're so interesting and I feel like the audience does respond well to that. Right. So, going to your mixed feelings, um, (laughs) which you said is a newsletter and a social brand? I kind of call it like a community platform, but it is, the heart and soul is definitely the newsletter, which is, there's a couple of different columns, but the bread and butter is very much the multi-voice advice column. So, Mm -hmm. basically, our audience will write in with like existential questions. Some examples of that might be like is it bad that I don't want to share my location with my best friend? And then this, and then I'd assign mm. different writers to it to respond in an essay. So that seems like, oh, maybe a, a simple question, right? Maybe it's like, no, you shouldn't. But we, Laura Pitcher wrote this, that, that, that Oh, one. Laura's so good. Laura's amazing. And it became a story about like, what does digital privacy mean, mm. right? So our goal with the advice column is really to have these like nuanced and challenging conversations about kind of the things that people are, maybe too afraid to ask. Well, why did you start Mixed Feelings? I pitched it about two years ago, and it's because I felt like we needed, of course we have Team Vogue, which is also a Gen Z magazine, which I obviously work for, but I was like, I feel like we need something that feels really intimate. 
I think it's a mistake to think of Gen Z as a monolith Mm -hmm. and not that Teen Vogue is doing that, but I think that there can totally be more than one Gen Z brand out there. There's different types of Gen Zs, so like different types of people within Gen Z that are interested in different things. Right. And I was like, I feel like we need something that's really intimate. I almost call it like DTC media. It's like direct to your inbox. It's directly Mm -hmm. in your Instagram. We have a Discord, which I love. We have like, we have like just shy of 100 people on it. Someone just put um slack in the discord today and was like i just interviewed for like they're so sweet they ask yeah <laughs> we like talk in it they 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 ask questions about how to deal with their bosses and we have a succession thread every week we talk in it and like it's really about engaging community and finding this kind of more intimate space sometimes i think about it like tumblr 2023 like the memes are very like nihilistic sometimes like they're funny they're it's in a way it's a mental health brand but it's not what I wanted was like I want a mental health brand that's not making you feel bad that you're not meditating every day or you're not constantly self-optimizing right and that's kind of where it was and I also think it when I pitched it I was like there's also an opportunity for this brand to be really experiential Mm -hmm. and to be doing things like the discord to be having in-person events um we just had our first movie night like pop-ups do like we are launching like cards we have something launching in June which I'm gonna send you um, which is a game. We're making a game, like a magic eight ball oh, game. Oh, okay. I can't, I don't know if I can say more. But okay. yeah, I always say that like mixed feelings is all about self understanding, not like radical self betterment. And mm-hmm. so something we did recently was like someone wrote in and was like, I feel like I'm, I broke up with my best friend last year. I feel like I'm still mourning it. Will this feeling ever go away? And the person who wrote, Haley Jacobson, incredible writer, was like, it probably will never go away. And that's, okay, and here are all the things that you can learn about. Like It, would be, it became a conversation around like the institution of best friendship. Mm-hmm. And what does that mean? And what pressure does having a best friend put on, especially people who are raised and grew up femme? And it was a really interesting conversation around like the institution of best friendship and what it means and how what the impact it can have like on women identifying people especially. Okay, I'm going to have to read that because I have like I, lots of feelings about it. I want to talk to you about it because like I think it's like designed to make you feel either bad or like it's a possession thing. You never yeah. hear about men doing it. I feel like it's about like women being a package deal. I think that's all the questions I have. Fun. <laughs> so. Well, thanks for having me on. Thank you Let's for being here. Let's talk about best friendships next. I know. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. So we've reached the end of this episode. I'd love to thank you all for tuning in. And um, if you want to keep up with Highbrow on other platforms, I do have an Instagram account for it. It's uh, highbrow.pod. And other than that, I'll see you next Wednesday. Bye.